This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. And we'll start reading from JTA this week. The first article, Brooklyn rabbi who fled to Israel to escape sexual assault charges in 2010, extradited to United States by Shira Hanau. A Brooklyn rabbi who had fled to Israel in 2010 to escape arrest on charges of sexually assaulting children was arraigned in a Brooklyn courthouse on Thursday. Gershon Kronzer, 65, had eluded authorities for years in Israel before being arrested in January 2020. He was denied bail in his first U.S. court hearing, which took place a day after Kronzer was extradited from Israel. Israel has become a haven for dozens of Jewish sexual abusers fleeing charges in recent years, particularly those in the Haredi Orthodox community who are aided by Israeli friends or relatives. In another prominent recent case, Malka Leifer, a former principal of a Jewish school in Australia, was extradited in January to face prosecution there for sexually abusing students at her school nearly eight years after fleeing to Israel. Kronzer was the principal of a Brooklyn yeshiva before fleeing to Israel, where he did not immigrate or have a residency permit amid a criminal investigation in 2010. The U.S. Justice Department asked Israel to extradite Kranzer for years, but Israeli authorities tried and failed to find him until January 2020 when he was arrested. Brooklyn District Attorney uh, Eric Gonzalez said in a statement Thursday that Kranzer would be charged with second-degree course of sexual conduct against a child, second-degree criminal sexual act, and second-degree sexual abuse. Gonzalez was the, uh, said the abuse of the two children occurred on multiple occasions between August 1996 and February 2003, beginning when the children were 6 and 11 years old. Czech Prime Minister opens Jerusalem Embassy Office on COVID-related Israel trip with Hungarian counterpart. The Czech Republic opened a branch of its embassy in Jerusalem, becoming the second EU member state to make such a move after Hungary. Czech Prime Minister Andrei Babis attended a ceremony Thursday marking the opening of the diplomatic mission of the we- in the west of Israel's capital city. Also visiting Israel Thursday was Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. During a joint news conference with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the visitors said they had come to learn from Israel's experience in fighting COVID. Netanyahu thanked both visitors for opening missions in Jerusalem and for how they assist on the international stage as true friends do. The two leaders came to see how we can cooperate on COVID, he added. Israel, where most residents have received at least one vaccine injection, has become the example of how to fight COVID, Babis said, adding it feels reassuring to know the Czech Republic has a friend it can rely on. Orban called Israel a world champion in fighting COVID. The Czech foreign ministry has told journalists that the new mission is not a recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital city, which the United States in 2017 recognized, but the European Union and many other countries and international bodies have not pending Israeli peace talks with the Palestinians. But observers, such as Peter Kratochvil, a political science expert from the Institute of International Relations Prague, have argued that the mission's opening cannot be seen separately from the debate about the status of Jerusalem. Rudolf Jindrak from the Czech presidential office described this as a highly significant symbolic step 
and the president's spokesman, Jiri Ovechek, even connected it directly with the effort to move the embassy here, Kratochville told Radio Prague International. The new office will focus on cultural issues and be staffed by a diplomat and a consular department employee. New York City's Eisenberg Deli, which had sold sandwiches and old-school Jewish dishes like egg creams and matzo ball soup since 1929, has closed. New York Magazine's Grub Street reported Thursday that a source familiar with the situation said the building landlord wants to reopen the restaurant at some point, but its future is uncertain. The current owner, Warren Chu, who bought the deli in 2018 with the goal of keeping its menu exactly the same, reportedly hasn't paid any rent since before the start of the pandemic. He also reportedly moved to San Francisco, where he had opened an Eisenberg's in the city's Warwick International Hotel last year. As of 2018, Chu was the vice president of development for the Warwick Hotel Group, which his father founded. New York Magazine said that Eisenberg's motto used to be raising New York's cholesterol since 1929. In addition to the now rare egg cream, the deli also sold Dr. Brown's Selray soda. Israel's military said it has says it has reached herd immunity to COVID. The Israeli military declared that it has reached herd immunity to COVID-19 after 80% of its personnel had either been vaccinated, had the disease, or both. The announcement makes the Israel Defense Forces perhaps the first military in the world to achieve immunity to the disease. Things look a lot more like they did a year ago. Brigadier General Dr. Alan Glassberg, the IDF's chief medical officer, told reporters Thursday, according to the Times of Israel, it seemed impossible, but now it's here. While herd immunity will allow the military to resume normal operations, soldiers will still have to wear masks and socially distance for now. The military's vaccination campaign comes amid Israel's record-setting drive to immunize its population. As of Thursday, more than 4 million Israelis, nearly half the country, and the majority of its adults have been fully vaccinated. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican congresswoman from Georgia, not known for being understated, called Rhode Island Democrat David Cicilline Mussolini for seeking a rule change to stop her disruptive tactics. I'm an Italian and a Jew, Cicilline shot back on Twitter. Mussolini was a fascist dictator in league with Adolf Hitler who murdered six million Jews. Marjorie Taylor Greene can get lost. Attempting to frustrate the passage Wednesday of President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic stimulus, Green, on several occasions, sought to exploit a rule that allows individual House members to seek an adjournment. The House, including many Republicans, loudly said no in a voice vote, but Green, a freshman, then exercised her right to seek a time-consuming roll call. That led Cicilline to propose stripping the right to adjourn from members who do not belong to committees. Last month, the House of Representatives stripped Green of her committee memberships for peddling threats and conspiracy theories, including some with anti-Semitic themes. Newsweek asked Green for comment on Cicilline's proposal. Do you mean Representative Mussolini, she said? Not only did Democrats unilaterally strip away my committees, now they want to remove any powers I have to represent my district. The Democrats run the House of Hypocrites, with tyrannical control.
And next from JTA, no APAC conference, no problem. We're meeting for coffee on Zoom by Ron Campeas. Washington. For years, the annual APAC conference has culminated with thousands of Israeli supporters knocking on their congressional representatives' doors here to deliver three policy requests. Last year, the conference in early March ended with anxiety about whether COVID-19 had spread after some of the country's first cases were detected among attendees. And this year, there's no throng and no door knocking at all. Due to the pandemic, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee announced in May that it would not hold an in-person conference in 2021 for the first time in decades. But the pro-Israel lobby says it's still engaging a broad swath of Americans through a series of online events that spanned the course of the year rather than being packed into a five-day conference. And although both staffers and lawmakers say Zoom lobbying has drawbacks, APAC remains optimistic about its plan to present a three-pronged policy agenda to lawmakers next week. We have very active creative services and communications departments that have now adapted to this environment quite ably in being able to take the type of high-quality presentations that you normally see at the policy conference and adapt them to the virtual environment, said Marshall Whitman, the group's spokesman. The suspension of APAC's signature event came at a crucial time in U.S. relations, U.S.-Israel relations, a new administration that is unlikely to be as solicitous to Israel as the Trump White House, looming elections in Israel, reconsideration of the Iran nuclear deal that Donald Trump as president exited, and backburner anxiety about support for conditioning USA to Israel. Those dynamics have been topics of the group's online events, Instead of the keynote speeches on the U.S.-Israel relationship, APAC held virtual sessions on the topic, including with President Joe Biden's Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Trump's top advisor and son-in-law Jared Kushner before the election in November. To replace the Shabbat-themed get-togethers on the Saturday before the conference, the group offered an online Advanced Rabbinic Political Activism Summit. Those with specific interests, perhaps progressive outreach or women's engagement with Israel issues, had online programs just for them. APAC held online events designed to engage the many non-Jewish Israel supporters who attend the annual conference, including several in February for Black History Month. Even the less formal events have been replicated, including the APAC Village, a showcase for Israel's high-tech sector, and a virtual coffee house on Zoom aimed at approximating the ambient atmosphere of schmoozing with folks in the hallways. Whitman registered a silver lining assessment that may have shared, uh, that many have shared during this year of online events, saying the virtual sessions attracted activists who might not otherwise have attended in-person events. We found that many people who hadn't been involved in the past have now gotten engaged, he said, although he did not have hard numbers, some 18,000 activists attended last year's conference. Now APAC is in the midst of what would ordinarily be the climax of its conference, constituent to legislature lobbying on Israel issues. The effort began right on schedule with a letter this week to the Biden administration from 140 members of the U.S. House of Representatives urging an expansive effort to contain the Iranian threat. APAC urged its followers to support the letter. Next week, APAC is expecting 900 activists to convene online for its national council and replicate the last day of the typical policy conference when thousands of activists knock on doors on the Hill promoting three requests. There are almost 500 congressional meetings scheduled. 
This year, according to an APAC official who spoke anonymously to discuss particulars, uh, particulars before their formal release, the requests will cover the Biden administration's plan to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal, which APAC opposed when, uh, in 2015, it was brokered by the Obama administration, preserving the levels of defense assistance to Israel, currently $3.3 billion a year, plus about $500 million in anti-missile development, and upholding the Abraham Accords, the four normalization agreements between Israel and Sunni Arab states brokered by Trump. The virtual lobbying has been effective, according to a senior congressional staffer, not with APAC, who deals with foreign policy. The same work is getting done, said the staffer, who asked for anonymity to speak candidly about dealing with lobbyists and activists. It's the same conversations, it's just virtually. There isn't a dinner, but people are attending panels, and the operation on the Hill doesn't feel any different. But some elected officials said Zoom strips some of the elements that make in-person lobbying effective. Zoom gets you most of the way there, but there certainly is the loss of personal contact, said Representative Brad Schneider, a Democrat of Illinois, who was an APAC lay leader before being elected to Congress. Nothing replaces that face-to-face -face meeting. So, you know, it creates a challenge. You're sitting in an office. There are a dozen people sitting around having a conversation. You lose the advantage of seeing every person speaking. It's much easier in person to get the interplay to ask the question, have a response, to get a question answered more robustly. A top APAC lay lobbyist who said virtual encounters especially inhibited cultivating relationships with new members of Congress. If you have the relationship, it's fine. If you're working on building the relationship, it's hard to build a relationship on Zoom, said the lobbyist who asked for anonymity to speak candidly about APAC's lobbying techniques. Ted Deutsch, a Florida Democrat who chairs the House Middle East Subcommittee and has been close to APAC, said he was impressed by its virtual game. There's nothing like being able to sit across from someone and engage in meaningful conversation about the U.S.-Israel relationship, he said. But the community has adapted during the pandemic, and now the meetings take place on Zoom. So there's an opportunity to bring more people together from more places at one time, and in some ways that provides an even better forum to interact with others and they've been really successful using technology to engage. Exactly what the future holds for the annual APAC conference remains unclear. At this point, the group is still considering whether to convene in person in 2022. And as the end of the pandemic enters view, the future of major conventions and their expense to stage and attend is up in the air. APAC laid off some staffers specifically focused on the conference planning last year, and hasn't yet recre recreated those positions. Whitman said one thing that's assured is that virtual outreach will continue. Activists have remained very involved with the comfort within the comfort of their own homes on their computers, he said, and that's been heart. NBA finds Myers Leonard $50,000 for using anti-Semitic slur. The NBA fined Miami Heat player Myers Leonard $50,000 two days after he was caught saying the word kike on a video game stream. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, who is Jewish, said Leonard spoke Wednesday with Anti-Defamation League officials, the Associated Press reported, to better understand the impact of his words. We accept that he is genuinely remorseful, Silver, uh, Silver added on Thursday. After the video clips circulated widely on social media, Leonard apologized to the Jewish community and specifically to the Heat's Jewish owner, Mickey Arison. He said that he was ignorant of what the word meant.
Leonard is already missing the rest of this season with a shoulder injury, but has also been placed on an indefinite leave of absence. He is officially suspended for one week of team activities and will be forced to participate in a cultural diversity program. We have further communicated to Myers that derogatory comments like this will not be tolerated and that he will be expected to uphold the core values of our league, equality, tolerance, inclusion, and respect at all times moving forward, Silver said in a statement. Jewish NFL star Julian Edelman posted an open letter to Leonard on social media on Wednesday saying casual ignorance can be more dangerous than hate and inviting him to a Shabbat dinner. And next from JTA, thousands of Orthodox Jews participated in a COVID-19 study last year. The first results are in by Shira Hanau. One year after COVID-19 first walloped Jewish communities in the United States, a scientific study has confirmed something that many in the communities have long believed. Gatherings during the week of Purim last year served as super-spreader events. A paper published Wednesday in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network Open, a peer-reviewed journal that is open to the public, concludes that the coronavirus was spreading widely in Orthodox communities across the country last spring around that Jewish holiday, before public health warnings were given about the dangers of large assemblies. The paper was peer-reviewed, meaning that its conclusions have been scrutinized and accept through a rigorous process. Now its authors, 14 Orthodox Jewish physicians who engineered a study of thousands of blood samples from Orthodox Jews who contracted COVID-19 spanning five states, say their paper has lessons as public health officials steer Americans through the pandemic's next phase. There should be specific recommendations for each religious and ethnic community, said Dr. Israel Zeiskind, a pediatrician in Brooklyn and one of the authors. They should be culturally sensitive, which is not something we've seen with the pandemic, especially early on. Dr. Avi Rosenberg, a renal pathologist at Johns Hopkins University and another author of the paper, said for Purim in particular, the guidance all came a week too late. The mask mandate followed Purim. The national lockdown followed Purim. The announcement of COVID as a pandemic followed Purim, he said. The paper is the first publication to come out of a research project started by three Orthodox Jewish doctors who decided early in the pandemic to turn a tragic turn of events. The extensive spread of the coronavirus in Orthodox communities around Purim into an opportunity to learn more about the virus through research. Through their project, which they called the Multi-Institutional Study Analyzing Anti-COVID-2 Antibodies, or the Mitzvah Cohort, they collected thousands of blood specimens that would go on to be used in 10 research labs for virology studies related to COVID in addition to their own paper published Wednesday. For the originators of the mitzvah cohort, the findings are an embodiment of the good deed they hoped to bring about last spring and a corrective to some of the negative press that some Orthodox communities have received for violating public health guidelines. The point of this whole effort was to make a Kiddush Hashem to show we care about our neighbors, Zeiskin said, using the term for sanctification of God's name. And we came out by the thousands to do that. The most important finding in their paper, according to the authors, is in understanding how the timing of Purim and lack of public health guidance at that time allowed the disease to spread widely in Orthodox communities. 
The study found that the onset of symptoms in all five states they studied came within one week of each other, suggesting that the interconnectedness of Orthodox communities across states should be considered when responding to a pandemic. Published just weeks before Passover, the paper's argument for public health guidance tailored to religious communities is still relevant. Within, uh, with millions of Americans already vaccinated, many families are hoping to gather this year for Passover seders following a year of Jewish holidays spent in isolation. But with most of the country still unvaccinated, the risks of gathering prematurely are significant for the unvaccinated. Pesach is about to come, and there's an urge now that we're a year into this, that we should let things down, Rosenberg said. Knowing how we celebrate, the suggestion would be that the numbers are still quite high, and unless you are vaccinated or recently convalesced, to continue to temper celebrations across family units. The paper also suggests that the infection rates in Orthodox communities in the early stages of the pandemic were higher than in surrounding communities, something the creators attribute to the highly social nature of the Orthodox community. But while many in certain Orthodox communities came to believe that their communities had reached herd immunity by late spring and early summer, with many returning to normal life while experiencing few new infections, the data in the study shows that to be unlikely. In New Jersey, the community with the highest percentage of positive antibody tests among the study samples, 32.5% of samples tested positive for antibodies. No value in the paper approaches herd immunity, Rosenberg said. In fact, the study also helped correct misconceptions some people had about their immunity status last spring. We learned in this process that a lot of people reported symptoms, but they didn't have serologic evidence of COVID, Rosenberg said, meaning that people who thought they had had COVID and were like, unlikely to contract it again had not actually had COVID. The study also discovered antibodies in people who had not had any symptoms, pointing to asymptomatic cases. The study first came together in the early days of the pandemic, when Rosenberg reconnected with Zeiskind, his former Brooklyn College classmate. The two were answering similar questions from members of their community about COVID and about policies for synagogues and schools. They soon started thinking about the possibility of doing research related to COVID within the Orthodox community and got in touch with Jonathan Silverberg, a dermatologist and epidemi epidemiologist at George Washington University, also a college classmate. They applied for approval from the Institutional Review Board to conduct a study and collected blood specimens over a two-week period in May. With the help of community organizations like New Jersey's Lakewood Bichur Cholim, which provides food and other services to hospital patients and others dealing with medical issues, they were able to collect blood samples from 6,665 people in Orthodox communities in five states. When Silverberg, Rosenberg, and Zeiskind were first envisioning a research project, they were hoping to conduct a prevalence study, which would indicate what percentage of a community had been infected with COVID, but the sample size needed for a prevalence study proved too large, so the trio retooled their approach. They decided that each trial participant would fill out a detailed questionnaire about the onset of their symptoms, the questionnaire provided the English calendar dates for Purim and Passover as reference points, the severity of symptoms and how long they lasted. Then they would take two vials of blood from each participant, with one from each participant to be used for antibody testing and for the paper. 
The other vials, as well as approximately 2,000 saliva samples taken from the same participants, would be sent off to 10 research labs for a range of virology studies related to COVID. The three doctors say they are excited to finally publish the findings of their research nearly a year after it began, and with approximately eight studies currently in process using those samples. There are more papers expected in the coming months on subjects like the differences between T-cell immunity and antibody immunity and the detection of antibodies in saliva. There are now five other manuscripts in development with data from this cohort that are really groundbreaking, Silverberg said. It's a credit to the Orthodox community and their efforts in coming out and helping put all this together. And next from JTA, a letter from 70 Democrats and 70 Republicans in the House of Representatives says that if President Biden plans to enter a new deal to curb Iran's nuclear program, then the U.S. should push for stronger sanction threats in the deal and beyond. As the Biden administration considers negotiations with Iran, we write to express our bipartisan and shared view that any agreement or set of agreements with Iran must be comprehensive in nature to address the full range of threats that Iran uh, poses to the region. The letter sent Tuesday to U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken reads, The letter, which is backed by AIPAC, the country's largest pro-Israel lobby, calls vaguely for a combination of diplomatic and sanction mechanisms to clamp down on their nuclear program, their ballistic missile program, and their funding of terrorism. Within hours of its release, there was disagreement between Republicans and Democrats over what the uh, the letter calls for. State Department spokesman Ned Price welcomed the letter during the daily press briefing, saying it sure sounds like we are on the same page in broad terms. Within minutes, the lead Republican signatory of the letter, Mike Waltz of Florida, disagreed. We are not on the same page, he said on Twitter. The difference appears to be one of sequencing. Biden wants to immediately re-enter the nuclear deal, which trades sanctions relief for a rollback of Iran's nuclear program, and then seek to broaden its provisions to address Iran's missile program and its military adventurism. Republicans want Iran to meet conditions before re-entering the deal. Iran's behavior must be addressed from the outset, the letter reads. On Wednesday, a similar but more democratic bipartisan group of House representatives introduced a resolution condemning Iran's nuclear program. Some of the signees, including Jewish Representative Elaine Luria, Democrat of Virginia, signed on to both the letter and the resolution. Holocaust survivors who were best friends in Germany were reunited more than 80 years after they last saw each other. Betty Bregenzischkoff, from St. Petersburg, Florida, and Anna Maria Warrenberg from Santiago, Chile, both 91, were reunited in November thanks to the work of a researcher at the USC Shoah Foundation, a nonprofit organization founded by Steven Spielberg, the Washington Post has reported. Both thought the other had perished. The researcher, Ita Gordon, attended a webinar, a webinar in which Warrenberg recalled surviving the 1938 Kristallnacht pogroms in Germany and Austria. She searched for more information about Warrenberg in the Foundation's archives. That led uh, Gordon to the life story of Grabenchikov, who attended the same Jewish day school as Warrenberg. Gordon watched the 1997 film Testimony by Grabenchikov, in which Grabenchikov mentioned her friend Warrenberg, 
and added she often wonders whether Warren Berg had survived the Holocaust. The women met at the age of six, also went to the same synagogue, took ballet lessons, and played dress-up according to the Post article. Although both women had changed their names after the Holocaust, Gordon was able to trace them and bring them in contact. They chat weekly over the phone. For 82 years, I thought my best friend from Germany was dead, Grabenschkikov told the Post. I've been looking for her all those years, and I never found her. Her family fled to Shanghai, China in 1939 and moved to the United States after 1948. Warrensburg's family settled in China. And next, from JTA staff, how the Haredi Orthodox are changing Israel. It's a Q&A adopted from one of four public conversations about the future of Israel being held every noon, uh, Wednesday at noon, Eastern Standard, Eastern Standard in collaboration between JTA and the Israel Democracy Institute in the lead-up to Israel's March 23rd elections. Israel's Haredi population is growing rapidly with long-term political, economic, and social consequences for the country. How are the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, changing Israel? And how is Israel managing their integration into mainstream society? Does Israel's experience hold any lessons for the American Jewish community? The Q&A that follows here, which has been condensed and lightly edited, was adapted from a recent public Zoom conversation featuring Gilad Malach, director of the IDI's Ultra-Orthodox in Israel program, which provides the Israeli government with policy proposals for integrating Haredim into Israeli society while allowing them to preserve their unique identity. And Nehumi Yafi, a researcher in the program and a faculty member at Tel Aviv University's Department of Public Policy. The session was led by JTA's opinion editor, Laura Adkins. What do we mean when we say Haredi? Yafi. The main characteristic of the Haredi community, a social group devised, uh, derived from an ideological movement that started in the 18th century, is segregation from the Western world. Once the Enlightenment started and Jews began drifting away from a religious lifestyle, the rabbis felt that the best way to maintain religious commitment was to segregate from the secular world. This segregation happens in different communities in different ways, and it's constantly changing. Malach. The central difference between the modern, secular world and ultra-Orthodox society is that the ultra-Orthodox are focused on the world to come. Collecting meets vote, commandments in this world for the eternal life. We believe there is progress in humanity, not just technological, but in terms of growing equality and democracy and improving the world. But the Haredi world believes in decline over generations. Ultra-Orthodox people focus on studying old religious things, much of it written 2,000 years ago. All over the world, ultra-Orthodox people live in enclave culture, with their own educational systems, community systems, even their own kashrut authorities, in order to be segregated. In Israel, ultra-Orthodox society has become a society of learners. Most of the men study Torah most of their lives, which is different from elsewhere around the world. So in Israel, the Haredi educational system doesn't include secular studies because they feel they don't need it. 
Women participate in a high level in the labor market because someone needs to earn money for their families and Haredim needs state support. What are some of the characteristics that distinguish Haredim from Israel's national religious community? Yafi, unlike in America where the difference between Haredim and modern Orthodox is more of a spectrum on which people move according to their exposure to the world and adherence to halachic interpretation, that is, interpretation of Jewish law, in Israel, the groups are very distinct, not just ideologically, but geographically and culturally. A key component is their approach to the state. Religious Zionists see the state of Israel as an expression of their spiritual and religious life, a way to actualize their Jewishness. Many are very strict in their Torah study and halachic observance. The Haredi community, starting in Europe, was very skeptical toward Zionism, seeing it as antithetical to religious life. While Haredi society is engaged with the state, it attaches no spiritual importance to it and to varying degrees does not respect it. Malach. The other main distinction is their attitude toward modernity. The national religious, which can also be called modern orthodox, have a positive attitude toward modernity to science. In ultra-Orthodox society, you need to listen to your rabbi not just in religious matters, but also on how to vote in the Knesset. If the state says something about COVID restrictions, you listen to the rabbis. If you are modern Orthodox, you listen to the expert. What are some of the tensions between Haredim and the other Israelis over service in the Israel Defense Forces? Malach. There were some Haredim who served in Israel's 1948 War of Independence. At that time, the political and spiritual leaders of the community asked Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion for an opportunity to allow yeshiva students to continue their studies. This was three years after the Holocaust, and Ben-Gurion said okay. At the time, there were a few hundred. But ultra-Orthodox society quickly realized that many of those who serve in the army cease being religious, Yet, people who learn Torah don't just stay in the community, but become more learned and religious than their parents. So the whole society shifted to yeshiva study over army service. Secular and modern Orthodox Israelis have a lot of anger that the ultra-Orthodox get this exemption from the army. This is one of the reasons we're going to elections again and again, because of disagreement over a new draft law. How can one be anti-Zionist or non-Zionist while still benefiting from the state? Yafi. Zionism as a movement started as a national endeavor that was very much aligned with European ideas about national movements at the time. Zionism was very much a secular endeavor. It wasn't a Jewish development, even though it used Jewish nostalgia and Jewish ideas. Rabbis saw it as a big threat to religious life because it was the source of a great drift away from religiousness at the time. Zionism was the first expression of Jewish identity that did not have a religious component. Zionism is still viewed by Haredim as a threat to religious life. Part of the reason why the Haredi community is so against the army is because it embodies the idea that Jews fighting for independence enabled the return to Zion not the Messiah coming on a donkey. It is a big conflict for a lot of religious people that very secular people establish the state. Haredim today view Zionism as an ongoing threat, even though they are stronger numerically and more religious than ever before.
Every Haredi views himself as at risk that the world is out to get him. Haredi literally means fearful, anxious. The feeling is that if we don't fight back and cling to segregation, we're just going to become secular. To what extent is there resistance following COVID-19 restrictions in Haredi Israel and in the resistance coming from the grassroots or leaders? Yafi. I'm Haredi. When COVID-19 started, a very big famous rabbi who I thought was very misinformed said you don't stop learning Torah because some people think there's danger. I think that laid the groundwork for this attitude that we don't have to obey the restrictions. All in all, a big part of the community, not all the community, the Haredi Sephardi Mizrahi community very much kept the restrictions and some of the Lithuanians as well. But all in all, the Hasidic world was just not following the health regulations. Malach, this is a very good example of the idea that from the ultra-Orthodox point of view, you need to obey the rabbis. They are the authority, not the state. Some Lithuanian yeshivish rabbis said education was of primary importance, so they continued Torah study. For some Hasidic communities, having weddings was the important thing, so they saw a need to continue that. At the beginning, Israeli authorities thought maybe the lack of adherence to COVID-19 restrictions was a problem of lack of communication, but since then we've realized it's bigger than that. It's do we look at what's good for, the, for our community or the state of Israel? A lot of Haredi communities said we know it might be dangerous, but we will pay a very high spiritual price if we are not gathering in synagogues or yeshivot or at weddings. So for us as a community, it's better to pray and pay this price. But they didn't think of the price the whole state of Israel pays in lockdowns and other economic costs. Most people in Israel are very upset about this. Despite these tensions, Haredi parties are part of nearly every governing coalition led by secular parties. Why? Malach, the irony is that the Haredim are the secular authority because they're part of the government. The health minister for the first half year of COVID was an ultra-Orthodox man. These contradictions are very interesting. The reason Haredi parties are usually part of the coalition is that they aren't very interested in left, right, or center. They play the role of kingmaker. Their demands are not connected to classical political questions of Israel's relationship with the Palestinians or even economic issues. Specifically, they are connected with two things the needs of the community, and issues of religion and state. Haredim are almost always part of the governing coalition, right or left. Why is Reform and Conservative Judaism generally sidelined by Israel's religious establishment? Yafi, when the State of Israel was established, there was no alternative religious conception to Orthodox. This was how the game was originally established, and since the Haredim are still the majority of religious Israelis, they still have the upper hand and use it. They have the power. I grew up Haredi and heard all about how bad reform is and how much worse it is than being secular or non-Jewish. But when I spent time in America and understand the culture better, I saw how much more nuanced and beautiful it is. But in Israel, we're talking about a different culture. We live in the Middle East. It's a very religious neighborhood, and we don't have Indonesian-style Islam. We have ISIS as neighbors. It's not just the geographical location, it's a state of mind. It's a very traditional mindset. 
Many Israelis, even non-Haredim and secular, don't see reform as representative of what Judaism is about. I'm struck when even secular people tell me this. The reform movement just doesn't speak to the Israeli culture. Malach. The next election may bring a reform rabbi to the Knesset for the first time. He's running in the Labor Party and has a realistic prospect of getting in. The Haredim will ban him. They won't talk to him. You might ask, but you're both religious people. Ultra-Orthodox Knesset members communicate with the secular ones, but that's because the ultra-Orthodox are focused on religion. They won't even communicate with a reformed Knesset member who has a differing view on religion. It might be very interesting, especially if labor is part of the coalition. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about Israeli Haredim? Malach. The main issue when we cry... Uh, the main issue when we as policymakers say that ultra-Orthodox society is a great challenge to the state of Israel is not about money the state spends on the ultra-Orthodox society. It's about the very low percentage of ultra-Orthodox participation in the labor market coupled with their growing numbers. This has significant implications for Israel's tax base. If 10% of Israelis live the way the ultra-Orthodox live, the state can handle that. But if it's 25%, that's a great economic and even social challenge. The state will collect less taxes, and the state needs that money to pay for health, infrastructure, security. Because of their high birth rates, the Haredi population is younger than average. Meanwhile, COVID-19 has accelerated the death rate among older Haredim. What are some of the implications of this? Yafi. COVID does not really affect young people in a significant way, and the Haredim are an extremely young community. I think this explains a big part of the cavalier attitude toward COVID among Haredim, and while many rabbis have died, there are still plenty of rabbinic leaders and leaders in waiting. One of the more notable aspects of COVID is that for the first time since the, uh, is that for the first time the Haredi community, its leaders, its rabbis, its politicians, expressed self-criticism. Since the Haredi community always tells itself we're under attack, there is no self-criticism, but the way some community members behaved was so negligent that some people spoke up. They said, these are not our values, this is not how we educate our children. This is a great development for the community because without criticism we're never going to rectify our shortcomings. Another thing that came out of COVID is wider use of the internet since we started working from home and interacting on Zoom. This undermines the walls the Haredi community has built around itself. It brings more complexity and nuance that might influence the community in a healthier way. Malach, the economic challenges of the COVID period might cause more Haredim to go and join the labor market or to pursue higher education. And the internet is not just a way to get information, but makes it much easier to take the steps necessary to join the labor market. And next from JTA, following an outcry, a city in Norway reversed its decision not to let two Holocaust survivors move to the country's only Jewish nursing home in Oslo. On Wednesday, the Skien municipality held a city council vote on the matter after earlier this year declining the request of Leif Arild, 86, and an older applicant because it can provide a good and adequate offer locally, as a municipal spokesman told the Vardan newspaper this week. Vardan ran an op-ed calling on Skien to reverse its decision, and the Jewish community in Oslo also urged the municipality to allow the survivors to move. 
Elderly Norwegians are eligible for state-funded housing solutions. If their needs cannot be met in their area of residence, they are referred to appropriate facilities elsewhere. The person's municipality of residence shoulders the extra costs connected to the out-of-town referral. The municipality also evaluates the person's application for referral. Irvin Cohn, head of the Jewish community in Oslo, told the JTA that the extra costs were insignificant and scans refusal to pay stems not from hostility to Jews but ignorance. It still causes pain. Last month, the community helped reverse another refusal by a district of Oslo that declined to refer a survivor to the city's Jewish senior center. The Jewish nursing home is adjacent to the main synagogue of Oslo and set up to deal with residents' traumas, which often resurface late in life, Cohn said. The, kosher, the food's kosher, and they celebrate Shabbat. Donald Trump showed off photos of naked women posing with him on a yacht to mourners at the shiva of an associate's mother, the New Yorker reported. Jennifer Weisselberg, the former daughter-in-law of the Trump Organization's chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, recalled the incident in a profile of Cyrus Vance Jr., the Manhattan prosecutor who is considering charging the former president and real estate mogul on tax insurance and banking fraud charges. The incident took place before her 2004 wedding to Barry Weisselberg. Trump arrived at the Shiva at a modest Long Island home and declared, this is where my CFO lives, it's embarrassing. He then showed the photos of the women. After that, he starts hitting on me, Jennifer Weisselberg said of Trump, and complained that her future father-in-law didn't stand up for me. Jennifer Weisselberg, who divorced Barry Weisselberg in 2008, described the relationship between her former father-in-law and his boss at the time when Vance and others are considering whether the elder Weisselberg would flip and testify against Trump. She said Weisselberg had more feelings and adoration for Trump than for his wife. Vance's team has interviewed Jennifer Weisselberg in part because she recently revealed that she and her husband lived rent-free in a Trump property. If Barry Weisselberg did not declare the property as income, he may be subject, uh, subject to tax evasion prosecution, which would be a means for Vance to squeeze his father into testifying against Trump. Spokespeople for Trump and the elder Weisselberg declined to comment to The New Yorker. In Germany, COVID-19 postpones the revival of the Jewish carnival tradition that the Nazis tried to end by Kanan Lipschitz. Looking over an old family scrapbook, Laura Channon saw a puzzling photograph of her paternal great-grandfather Max Solomon wearing women's clothes. She had questions. What is this? Why is he in drag? Channon, a 53-year-old mother of one from California, asked about the experience of several years ago. The discovery led Channon, who works at a logo printing business, to discover that Solomon was among the founders of the first Jewish group to officially participate in the carnival of his native Cologne. Carnival, a week-long event to celebrate Lent, the 40-day period that precedes Easter, is one of the German city's most cherished traditions. Hundreds of thousands of revelers wear colorful clothes and consume massive amounts of alcohol on the street. The culmination is a parade in which registered groups compete and show off the creations they had toiled on throughout the year. Floats, often with paper bache caricatures satirizing politicians or phenomenons. The makers ride or march alongside wearing their costumes and displaying their dance routines. A reincarnation of Solomon's group was poised to join the festivities this year with a float for the first time in decades. 
since the Nazis banned the club from Carnival in 1933. But the COVID crisis intervened and the event has been canceled. In 1923, Solomon became the first president of the Klein and Kölner Club, or Little Cologne Club, which was the event's first registered Jewish group. It remained active until the Nazis rose to power. The photo of Solomon in drag was part of the group's acts, Shannon discovered. Solomon immigrated to the United States before the Holocaust. Shannon and other descendants of the early Jewish group, ironically it was known by the same three initials as the Ku Klux Klan, KKK, have also learned that local Cologne Jews for the first time in decades recently reconstituted an official Jewish group in Carnival, the Kosha Kippa Cup. The group, whose name means Cologne Kippa Heads and is a tribute to Solomon's original outfit, was created in 2017. The plan was to have the new club, which has about 20 members, participate with its own float for the first time at the parade, which usually takes place in mid-February. That's been spoiled by the pandemic. It's disappointing, especially since this year is the year that the Jewish community and government are celebrating 1,700 years of Jewish presence in Germany, said Aaron Knopstein, who co-founded the new Jewish club. But it's the way it is. Next year we'll celebrate the 1700 101st year of Jewish presence, I guess. The proximity of Carnival to the Jewish holiday of Purim, when it's also customary to dress in costume, gives members of the Jewish club extra reason to party. You have to dress up and free your mind and show that it's okay to be different, Robert Katona, a 49-year-old Cologne native, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency in 2009. That's also what Purim is about. We survived and we show that we're happy. But in a country where the rise in anti-Semitic incidents is making some Jews question their futures, even the planning of a Jewish float has brought some uncomfortable issues to the fore. When we have the float, there will, be, there will have to be security around it. That's just the way things are right now. Security was on hand, too, at the Cologne Synagogue, where the Kol Shekipa Cup had its launch event in 2019. Many journalists and non-Jewish carnival enthusiasts attended, and Knopstein drew the guests' attentions to the guards. Knopstein restarted the Jewish Carnival Club out of a deep sense of belonging to Cologne, a city in western Germany with a tradition of tolerance and a laid-back atmosphere. But due to anti-Semitism, even he has contemplated leaving for good for the first time in his life. It happened in 2019 after a neo-Nazi attempted to carry out a massacre at the synagogue in Halle near Berlin on Yom Kippur. The extremist, who has since been tried and sentenced to life in prison, filmed himself while unsuccessfully attempting to break into the building when it was full of congregants, then killed two people nearby. Knopstein cried in front of the television when it was reported and began wondering whether Germany is my place where I would like to stay. Is this my home? He told JTA. After Hala, I can't say I'm 100% sure, and I'm very happy I have at least one place to go, he said, referencing Israel. The Koshikipa cops' costumes reflect the dilemma described by Napstein. Members wear a pointed hat, which is checkered in blue and white, the colors of Israel's flag. The middle part has a fold that is normally closed when the hat is worn, but can be opened to reveal a Star of David and the Traveler's Prayer printed against a background of red, the dominant color in Cologne's banner. The choice followed some debate, Kopstein said. We wanted to have the Star of David, but not to wear it on the outside, he explained. Not because we're scared, but my, parent, my grandparents had to wear the Star of David on the outside of the cloth. I don't want that. It didn't feel right. 
Knopstein, a human resources professional who is gay, has been living in the city with his husband for the past 13 years. He declined to elaborate on his own family's survival of the Holocaust. I don't do that. I don't talk about that. I promised my mother before she died, he said. Back in California, Channon hopes to visit the Cologne Carnival in the coming years to see the revival of the tradition that her great-grandfather helped start. I think it's just great that they're bringing it back. It has so much meaning, she said. Despite some research into her family history, Max Solomon's role as the first president of the original Jewish group of the Cologne Carnival is one of just a handful of facts she knows about him. I had no idea about any of this before just a few years ago, she said of his carnival role. But now it makes us feel very proud of him. And next from JTA, Jewish students in Germany have raised more than $40,000 to help the owner of the kebab shop in Halle that was attacked after a neo-Nazi gunman was unable to enter a nearby synagogue. The Jewish Student Union Germany started a GoFundMe campaign last year to assist Ismet Tekken, who owns the shop with his brother, surpassing by far its original goal of 7,000 euros, about $8,300, Deutsche Well reported. Tekken's business suffered massive losses and was on the verge of bankruptcy because of the COVID-19 pandemic and a drop in sales following the 2019 attack on Yom Kippur. A neo-Nazi killed a woman and a diner after failing to enter the synagogue. He has since been sentenced to life in prison. Tekken was not injured and thus the shop does not qualify for assistance under the Victims, of Con the Victims Compensation Act. The attacker reportedly said he targeted the shop because it was Muslim-owned. Tekken and his partner now have enough money to stay open for the foreseeable future and renovate the restaurant, Deutsch Well reported. They plan to add tables to the back room for when restaurants reopen in Germany. Steven Spielberg's newest project is on a subject that he's quite familiar with. He will direct and co-write a movie loosely based on his childhood in Arizona, Deadline reported Tuesday. Tony Kushner, the Jewish playwright who wrote Angels in America and has collaborated with Spielberg on Munich and Lincoln, is working with the famed director on a script. Michelle Williams is in negotiations to play the character based on Spielberg's mother. The film will be released in 2022, according to Deadline. Spielberg, 74, was born to Jewish parents in Cincinnati but moved to Arizona at age 11. He has talked about experiencing anti-Semitism as a teenager. His father, Arnold, an electrical engineer who worked in developing early computers, died last year at 103. His mother, Leah Adler, who was known for owning the kosher restaurant The Milky Way in Los Angeles, died in 2017 at 97. Norton Juster, a Jewish architect and children's book writer best known for his classic wordplay-filled novel The Phantom Tollbooth, died Monday. He was 91. The cause was complications from a recent stroke, according to his daughter Emily. The Phantom Tollbooth, published in 1961, follows a bored boy named Milo who drives a magical toy car through a fantasy land full of numbers, puns, and other lessons. It was one of the most beloved children's books of the 20th century for its creative storyline and its aim at inspiring intellectual curiosity among children. Juster first discovered his interest in words with the help of Yiddish books in his parents' house. He told Tablet that uh, he told Tablet that his parents, Jewish immigrants from Romania and Poland, had multiple shelves of thousand-page novels and other tomes translated from Yiddish and Russian. 
I just loved the language and the way the words sounded, he said. Justier grew up in Brooklyn during the Great Depression, and he recalled to Tablet that he savored the taste of his mother's kasha varnishkas during those years. After studying architecture at the University of Pennsylvania, he served in the Navy. While stationed at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, he met Jules Pfeiffer, the Jewish cartoonist who would later illustrate the Phantom Tollbooth. Despite the success of the Phantom Tollbooth, Juster stayed an architect for decades and lived in Massachusetts. He died at his home in Northampton. And next, an opinion piece from JTA, The Jewish Muscle Man Who Likely Inspired the Creators of Superman by Tzvi Sinensky. With Superman and Lois, the newest TV series involving the character premiering on the CW network a few weeks back, it's a good time to recall that Superman was the 1938 brainchild of Jewish creators Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster of Cleveland. Many have suggested that the pair were inspired by their own Jewish backgrounds to create Superman as the paradigm of a hero who defended vulnerable populations from their enemies but there is reason to suspect that a more specific encounter may have inspired them to craft the Superman persona. The years 1923 and 1924 saw a phenomenon in the United States, tours by Sigmund Breitbart, known as the Jewish Superman, across America. Breitbart performed in Cleveland and Toronto, Siegel and Schuster's respective hometowns. While it is nearly impossible to prove there are no records of Siegel or Schuster mentioning Breitbart, there is reason to surmise that the strong man may have served as something of an inspiration. He wore a cape and was advertised as capable of stopping speeding locomotives. Who was this man Breitbart, lauded during his lifetime as the strongest man in the world, the Iron King, the Jewish Hercules, and a modern-day Samson? Zygmunt Zisha Breitbart was born to a family of locksmiths in Lodz, now Poland, then Russia, in 1893. In his autobiography, he reports that his family discovered his unusual strength when, at age three, he extricated himself from beneath an iron bar that had fallen on him in his father's store. By four, he was casting iron in his family's shop. His early years were difficult. Expelled from a number of religious schools for using force against fellow students, Breitbart was captured by the Germans while serving in the Russian army during World War I. After the war, he remained in Germany, subsisting on the money he earned by performing feats of strength at local markets. It was at one such 1919 performance that the German Circus Bush, famous for featuring Harry Houdini, and other top performers spotted Breitbart and brought him on board to perform its opening act. Breitbart's strongman routine, which had him dressed in hyper-masculine costumes such as a Roman centurion, skyrocketed in popularity, and he quickly was moved from sideshow to main event. Notwithstanding the fast-rising tide of anti-Semitism in Germany, Austria, Breitbart, who often wore the star of David while entering the circus ring, achieved a mass Jewish and non-Jewish following in Berlin, Vienna, Prague, and Warsaw. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.